this is something I think the average person might not understand just because someone is a sprinter they're you know they're surviving they're making it over the mountains they certainly can't climb at the same rate as uh, Jonas Vingegaard or Primoz Roglic or these other riders that are exceptional climbers and are fighting for the GC competition but they're extremely fast climbers. They're, these are not like, it's not like these guys get to a climb and so like, they're just kind of dawdling. Again, like if we're to put them in the context of domestic racing and outside of the Tour de France, like they would destroy everyone. That's another one of those things where people are like, oh, Caleb Ewan's a sprinter. That probably means he can't climb. No, Caleb Ewan can climb better than 99% of cyclists in the world. <laughs> I'm Jonathan Kaplan, and I write the newsletter, Riding With, which tells the stories about the Americans racing at the highest levels of professional cycling in Europe. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at riding underscore with underscore J-E-K, and the newsletter, which will host this podcast, is at ridingwithkaplan.substack.com. That's R-I-D-I-N-G with Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N, dot substack.com. Today is stage two of the Tour de France, and it's episode two of the Riding With podcast. And I'm totally psyched that I'll be joined by Andrew Vance, a longtime journalist and host of two podcasts, or co-host of one, host of another. He's co-host with Spencer Martin of Beyond the Peloton, and he he's the host of his own podcast, Choose the Hard Way. Andrew and Spencer, for that matter, they've been fantastic and super helpful as I've started this journey about a year ago to build build and create this newsletter. Um, they both know literally more about the ins and outs of the sport um, than anyone else. They're sort of both walking, talking encyclopedias of the sport. And with Andrew, my goal was to, with his help, make the sport more accessible. There are There's lots of jargon in cycling. I do think it's a barrier to getting people engaged and excited about the sport beyond just watching the Tour de France. So we're going to go over basic things like, what is the yellow jersey? What is a GC rider? Is the broom wagon really a thing? And what is it? Again, the goal here is I want you to walk away feeling more informed and smarter about the Tour de France. With that, let's get to it. Jonathan, it's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm a huge fan of your newsletter, it's been exciting to watch it grow during the past year, and I'm ready to get down and talk a little bit about the Tour de France. So so the race starts July 1st, and I think our goal today is is to just help people understand the language of the Tour de France. I don't know if you listen to the guys on Smartless who often talk about Hollywood and making movies and television that, that they explain things for Sean Hayes' sister, Tracy in Wisconsin. Well, this is for my brother, Jordan from Joliet. So shout out to Jordan. Yeah, right. Yeah. Jordan, what's up, man? <laughs> we love you. So this is the, the, the tour is the biggest bike race in the world. It's like the reference point that most people have for the sport of cycling. So let's start with the big picture. What are cycling's three grand tours? Well, I think first we have to talk a little bit, Jonathan, about how the tour is the biggest bike race in the world. Spencer and I were just recording an episode yesterday. Like everybody else in the world, we're doing little recaps of Tour de France unchained. And have you noticed how many times they say the Tour de France is the biggest bike race in the world? 
Like every time. <laughs> yeah, every time. I think it, they got it. They have to say it like every forty-five seconds during that show. But it is. It's the it's the biggest bike race in the world. It's every professional cyclist dream to ride in the Tour de France. There are three Grand Tours. There's the Tour of Italy, which is the Giro d'Italia. There's the Tour de France, and of course there is the Vuelta a España, which is the Tour of Spain. Grand Tours are three-week races, and we're going to tell you a little bit more about these fantastic events, aren't we, Jonathan? I hope so. So what makes the Tour de France the most prestigious, and how does it differ from the Giro and the Vuelta? Yeah, the Tour de France is the most prestigious because it is the oldest, it's the biggest, it's the best, it's the race that attracts the very best competition. Cycling is a sport that is steeped in history and heritage and historically the tour de france has always been the biggest and best bike race in the world but how, how does the how does it differ in terms of the riding from the giro the vuelta besides the you know the giro is in may the vuelta is in what september um how, how are they different i think the biggest difference is just you get the very best competitors at the tour de france so you certainly get great fantastic world-class cyclists in the Giro and in the Vuelta, but every team has, you know, just like other professional sports, there's a bench and there are different levels of riders and there are riders who are potentially capable of winning the Tour de France on a handful of teams. I think every team would like to think, hey, we've got a guy who can win the Tour de France. The reality is there are just a handful of riders who really have a shot at winning it and below that tier then you have other riders who don't have a chance of beating the riders that are dominating the sport right now and they get sent to the other grand tours to have a shot at leading the team or to go for stage wins so as it relates to the actual parkours the the courses that the cyclists race on the giro and the vuelta at times they have more extreme courses actually like they can be more brutal than the course in the actual tour de france and one of the reasons the organizers of those races have sometimes more extreme stages is to do anything possible to get even more attention for the races and to attempt to heighten the drama right. within the races so they tend to they tend to be a bit more experimental at times, you know, you might say that the Giro or the Vuelta, they they also were steeped in in pageantry, history, heritage. But like, it's a it's a bit like an art film sometimes. It's uh, maybe like a, a, a David Lynch version of a Grand Tour <laughs> sometimes, where something horrific is about to happen to the writers, where they might have a stage packed with just an amount of climbing that is absolutely brutal, or climbs so steep that the riders can barely pedal up them. And you, you tend to not see stuff like that at the Tour de France, which I also would say is it's a pretty inhumane thing. Like being able to go and do that for three weeks on a bicycle is it's not a normal thing. You right. need to have a freakish physiology ability and mentality to be able to do it. But wow, if you look at some of the things that go down at the Tour of Spain and even at the Giro this year, it's a bit beyond the pale. Yeah, I mean, the weather was just horrific. I mean, it just looked awful. I, I did like um, Joe Dombrowski, who rides for Team Astana, uh, posted a, a, a text his wife sent him on Instagram. It was um, 
uh, you can go, you can go to riding with and, and find it, but it was kind of like BRR icicle. And he, he texted back like, that's the coldest I've ever been on a bike. And I think the other thing that Joe told me is like, you know, when he comes to the U S and he says, oh, I'm a professional cyclist. And the first thing people say, oh, so you race the tour de France. So it is like a, a huge reference point for, for Americans. Um, and actually, yeah, I mean, Jonathan, I'm, I'm sure you've had people ask you that probably, right? Like you've probably told someone in your life, I'm sure you've done a bike race at some point, or you did a grand fondo or something. And you, you tell a friend or a relative, somebody at work, like, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a cyclist. I did, you know, Joe's grand fondo down the road in Baltimore this weekend. And the next thing they ask you is, well, do you think you have a shot at yeah, riding right, the tour? Right. Like, do you think, do you think that's, I mean, that's what I tell people. I'm 47. I say, Hey, I'm, I'm ramping up. I think I have a shot at the, the world tour next year. And I am hoping to make the tour de France selection if at all possible. Right. right. You know, the other thing I think people are always surprised about is, um, who decides where the tour starts and ends because, you know, this year it starts in Spain. Last year it started in, in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, it's, you know, past years it started in, in London. Who, who decides that and why do they do that? So the ASO decides who, where the tour starts and ends. And that is a family that owns the tour de France. It's a privately owned organization and they get paid start money by the towns where the race starts and ends. And they have deals with, you know, the, the cities outside of France where they're starting the race because it brings a potentially a huge economic upside for the the towns and cities that host the starts and and finish of tour stages again i was having a debate with spencer yesterday about what is the actual economic impact of some of these sports events and i'm from kansas city that's kansas city missouri for anyone who's (laughs) listening i often um yeah i get a lot of you're from kansas spencer is from kansas originally i'm i'm not i'm from I'm from Missouri. I'm not from Bob Dole's home state. Um, shout out, uh, Bob Dole. Rest in peace. Yeah. So that's that's the deal with that. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, though, when we, we we went last year to Copenhagen, I think the entire city, maybe even all of Denmark, was in Copenhagen. So, um, And we were there, you know, spent. It's not easy getting to um, or, or cheap getting to Europe these days. So... But I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it's often like the Olympics, the Super Bowl, you know, you often hear like, um, the World Cup, you know, countries, cities go, go to bat to get these huge events. And then the, the economic yes. impact is short lived if they have it, at, if there's one at all. Well, yes. Okay. Jonathan, now I'm remembering why I was rambling about why I'm from <laughs> Kansas City, which actually made no sense. I'm going to tie the knot here. So, uh, Kansas City, Missouri hosted the NFL draft this year, and I was looking up some data on this yesterday. I believe Kansas City paid the NFL, which as you and I know is a for-profit entity that seems to throw off billions of dollars uh, of profit, and they held the draft in Kansas City this year, and Kansas City, I think, paid several million dollars of uh, public money. There was also several million dollars of private money put in to get the event at Union Station in downtown Kansas City. And they estimated that the economic impact was north of $130 million. I saw a number of different figures. 
what the reality of that is, is a question mark. But the idea is, of course, like you get people like at the tour, let's go back to the tour de France now, right? You get people to travel to the cities such you did it, right? Like you traveled to Copenhagen to go watch the tour. You spend money, you get a hotel room, whatever, Airbnb, you're spending money in the city. So that's offsetting whatever the city might pay to have this spectacle there. So it's a very prestigious thing for a city and can put them on the map potentially. Right. And that was as far north as the as the Tour de France has ever started. So in fact they had to, they had to have a rest day after three days in Denmark to get the entire race back to France, which is like moving you're moving a small city basically, which was which was kind of crazy. Right. So Right. And while and while COVID was ripping through the Peloton, <laughs> yeah, right. they stuck all of the riders from different teams on two chartered jets and then flew them somewhere which seemed a totally absurd with a complete disregard for rider safety. But for anyone who's listening, that's kind of another hallmark of the sport and other sports like F1. I mean, pro sports, if if you're not inside of the world of professional sports, just a heads up, pro sports are not a healthy endeavor. They tend <laughs> not to be real great for the health of the people who are playing the sports. The NFL, of course, being a a really great example but if you look across pro sports you know we sometimes think about these athletes as being the embodiment of health synecdoche for wellness and the reality is that what these people are doing and the extremes they're pushing their body to is not in any way healthy and they often suffer pretty significant health consequences down the line and then within the tour de france itself there's just not a real high regard for rider safety. And I know we're going to talk a little bit today about things like road furniture and some other things within the race, but some sports have at least make a gesture towards safety measures. Right. You know, in F1, you could drive a 200, a car into a wall at 200 miles per hour. And I know that there are at times tragically deaths in F1, but they take a lot of measures. Same thing with NASCAR to, try to limit the amount of damage that these um, athletes might face. And we've seen it. We've seen in F1, hey, a a driver goes into a wall at 150, 200 miles per hour. The car catches on fire and like they they get out of the car and survive because they put a lot of effort into these safety measures. That's not really going on in pro cycling, Jonathan. It's not a real safe sport. Right, right, right. As I mean, you know, there's a line that there's two types of cyclists, those who those who um have crashed and those that will so it is is un, it's an unfortunate um um aspect to the sport you know speaking of the crashes i mean you know the netflix documentary unchained tour de france um you know they who, who was it that crashed it wasn't jasper Philipson's. it's um jacobson yeah and i mean they the number of times they showed that guy that guy's horrific crash in poland um what is just unbelievable um, but just to stay with Unchained and to, to move on a bit, you know, Unchained is great. I mean, it's, you know, better than some, as you point out, something beats nothing for the sport, but it does miss some basic plot points, such as like who wears what jersey and why are the jerseys yellow, green, white, and polka dot. So let's start, let's start with that. Yeah, totally. So there's the yellow jersey. That's what the leader of the race wears. And when we say leader of the, of the race, Winning the Tour de France is having the lowest overall cumulative time for having completed all of the stages. So if you add up the time it takes to finish each stage, the person with the least amount of time 
at the end of the race is the person who wins the yellow jersey. And during the race, the person that you see wearing the yellow jersey, and it might change hands depending on what happens, is the person who at that moment in time has the lowest cumulative time. The polka dot jersey is the jersey for, they say it's for the best climber in the race, and we could debate that probably. The person who is leading the mountain points competition wears the polka dot jersey, and that is a competition within the race where there are specified climbs. There are points available at climbs throughout the race, and the person who has the highest amount of points in that competition by getting to those climbs first or as close to first as possible, beating other people in the competition, leads that competition. And then there is the green jersey competition, which again, allegedly it's for the best sprinter. This can get kind of confusing because the person who wins the green jersey is not always the person who's winning multiple stages because you do get points for the green jersey competition for doing things such as winning the sprint to win a stage. And you will also get points in this competition for certain points within the race that are specified as sprint points in the green jersey competition. So it's a way to the polka dot jersey and the green jersey are a way to have more action during the television coverage really so that it's animating the race and it's creating these artificial moments when they're typically is definitely going to be action because people are fighting to get these points when otherwise, you know, the action tends to be more random and less predictable. Right. So the race organizers can say, we know it's going to take about this much time to get to this point. Back in the days when people were watching this on terrestrial television <laughs> and they weren't streaming and couldn't fast forward, they might sit around thinking, okay, great. Here comes a sprint point or here comes a moment in the, the King of the Mountains race, the polka dot jersey competition. Today, it's still exciting to watch. There's just a lot of debate about, you know, is this person actually the best sprinter? Are they the best I climber? See. I see. Or, you know. And is Yeah. It and I mean, like last last year, for example, Wout Van Aert won the green jersey. He also won multiple stages. And that does happen sometimes, but that was anomalous. He's a freakish rider. Right, right, right. A yeah. Belgian guy who rides for Jumbo Visma. Yeah. So Jonathan, I don't know. I've, ex I've explained like green, yellow polka dot to many people in my life before. I feel like once you go through all that, you usually kind of get this blank, confused look. So I have okay. no idea if that <laughs> made sense. I, think Jordan, I think Jordan gets it. I think. And then, the, and then there's yeah, the white okay. jersey, which is for the, the youngest rider under 25, right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, Tade Pagacha has won that jersey for the past several years, but it's been confusing because he's often in the yellow jersey. And the yellow, right. the yellow jersey, of course, last year, though, you know, white jersey, shout, shout out, Tade. Yeah. Right. So so you can wear both jerseys at the same time. In theory, you could have all four. But if you'd be pretty I mean, hot. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, you could be you could be leading all of those competitions. And the way this works is, let's say, let's say you're Tade and you're leading the race. So you're in the yellow jersey. You're, you're leading the overall race which we call general classification or gc so if you hear commentators talking about the gc that's they're talking about the race for the yellow jersey and the overall so let's say tade 
is in the yellow jersey. He's leading the race. He also is leading the young jersey, or sorry, the youngest rider, the young rider jersey competition. So hypothetically, he would be wearing the white jersey. But because he's yellow, wearing the yellow jersey, the next person down gets to wear the white jersey uh, in okay, the race. Okay. So you can't, you can't like you have can't all of them at the both. same got time. It, got it. Okay. Yeah. Is it is it true? Yeah. I mean. The Lantern Rouge, the red jersey for the guy that finishes last, is actually a thing. Uh, there's not an actual no jersey. red jersey. It's no, but I mean it's definitely a thing because even if you're finishing, if you're finishing last place in the Tour de France, you're still head and shoulders above, uh, you know, all cyclists in the world, and you're still probably way better than most <laughs> professional cyclists in general. Like the person who's finishing last in the tour de France could show up, you know, if you're someone who's done any competitive cycling, you might've done a thing called a criterium. It's a popular racing discipline in America, but the person finishing last place in the tour de France could show up at a professional criterium race in the United States. And I would say they probably could destroy the field. Right, right. They're head and shoulders above, you know, what's happening in the United States and certainly like at a local level. Yeah. yeah. I think even last year, I think the, I think it was because of bad luck that Caleb Ewan might've finished last. I have to go back and check that, but he's like yeah. one of the best sprinters. Great. Yeah. Level, great. Ex right? Yeah. Great. Great example. Yeah. I mean, it's just another, cause when you're watching the race, you're going to hear them talking about so-and-so is a climber. Caleb Ewan is a sprinter. And again, this is something I think the average person might not understand just because someone is a sprinter they're you know they're surviving they're making it over the mountains they certainly can't climb at the same rate as uh Jonas Vinegard or Primoz Roglic or these other riders that are exceptional climbers and are fighting for the GC competition but they're extremely fast climbers they're, they're not like it's not like these guys get to a climb and so there's kind of dawdling again like if we're to put them in the context of domestic racing and outside of the tour de france like they would destroy everyone but i that's that's another one of those things where people are like oh caleb ewan's a sprinter that probably means he can't climb no caleb ewan can climb better than 99 percent of cyclists in the world right but more than that right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And i thought in unchained one of the most moving scenes like at a, an emotion an emotional level wasn't for the winner it was for fabio jacobson as he's i think it was stage 17 he's you know the the team makes the decision like his teammates need, he's this big sprinter the teammates he's he's way behind um, they're afraid if the teammates, his teammates stick with him, that they're all going to get, they're not going to make the cutoff time. So they leave him to make the last couple of climbs alone. And you can see at the, at the finish line, his teammates are cheering him on as he kind of struggles to, um, get up that last, that last climb. And behind him is the sweet van. And I didn't realize that was an actual thing. Yeah. It's a broom wagon. It's got brooms on it. Yeah. They'll sweep you up and take you out take of the race. Wow. Yeah. So there's, I guess we should talk about this too, because there's the person in last place, the Lantern Rouge. There's also a time cut every day, Jonathan. So to stay in the race, it's you can't just. It's not just like okay, Fabio Jakobsen completed the stage that day; he gets to stay in the race. No, he has to finish the race within a certain percentage of the winner's time, and if he does not finish within that time margin, you're out of the race. They disqualify you, and this. 
I can't uh, think of an example at the moment, unfortunately, but this has happened in a really brutal mantle before where a rider that people really want to see continue in the race misses it by a couple of seconds and they get time cut. So that sometimes is drama that's happening at the back of the race. You might hear the commentators talk about, and yeah, you know, that's a good example of Fabio Jakobsen just fighting to survive because that's, you know, staying within, particularly in these, mountain stages and just the the speed at which the front group is climbing they don't show it too often but there's a thing called the gruppetto and that is a group of riders who just are working in in an alliance to try to survive and get to the finish and make the time cut so they know roughly okay we have to ride at about this pace but sometimes a rider might be they might have an actual in- injury. They might be ill right. and they're just out there in no man's land pedaling alone, trying to get to the finish. And yeah, those stories don't get told too often to, you know, certainly on like the, the peacock broadcast or like general public stuff. Right. But that's where you see some of people digging the deepest and like real grit. That's, that's yeah. the kind of writing I can relate to being dropped, left alone. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know what that's that's like. Yeah, here in Midcoast, man, I'm always chasing after my riding buddies on some of the hills here. They're a little bit smaller than me. Right. The Riding With podcast is produced and edited by the team at Palm Tree Podco. Anthony Palmer is the executive producer.